Hey everybody, welcome to season two of True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. This is a new limited series called The Manchester Mysteries. You'll still be getting real life stories of crime and unsolved cases, but all wrapped up in a very different package. This season, I'm concentrating on the captivating stories that have come out of one particular small Midwestern town called Manchester. Manchester is both weird and wonderful, with a full cast of interesting characters who have some unique stories to tell. I'll be presenting you with tales of murder, mayhem, and crimes of passion. And I'll be bringing you everything from missing persons cases to questionable suicides and even a homicide that went unsolved for 40 years. There'll be an element of local folklore to some of our tales, but also a healthy dose of science, DNA technology, forensics, history, government, law, and so much more. And yes, it's all out of one little community in small town America. If you think you had our country's heartland all figured out, well, guess again, because I'll be bringing you stories this season that would make Ted Bundy blush. Season two of True Crime IRL, The Manchester Mysteries, debuts January 14th, 2022, and is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Until then, lock your doors, people, even if, or especially if, you live in Manchester. Bye-bye. You're listening to Season 2 of True Crime IRL, The Manchester Mysteries. Although this series is based 100% on factual events, keep in mind that at times we've changed the names of people or places in order to protect the innocent, or in some cases, the guilty. Episode 3. I'm starting a podcast. Hey everyone, it's Kelly from True Crime IRL and you're listening to part 3 of this little limited series I'm doing called The Manchester Mysteries. Now, you need to listen to these episodes in chronological order if you want to know what's going on. So, if you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, please go back and do that first, and then come back and listen to this one. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all staying happy and healthy. I'm a little under the weather, and I took a Nerf dart to the eye recently. Whole big thing. Oh my gosh. If you follow me on social media, you've probably seen me complaining about all of those things. And if you're not following me on social media, you need to at True Crime IRL on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So to recap the last couple episodes... In episode one, I told you a little bit about Manchester and about how we moved here. And then in episode two, I started to tell you about some of the murders around here that have had local ties. But I've only scratched the surface so far of all of this. There is so much more that I'm going to share on these details. But we left off talking about Jerry Burns. He was arrested for the murder of Michelle Martinko, which by then was a 39-year-old cold case. And we all know how that ended up. 
Jerry Burns was convicted. But did he really do it? Could the DNA have been wrong? If he did it, could he have killed anyone else? Could he have had an accomplice? So many questions. And these questions prompted me to start a podcast. I get asked all the time, what got you into true crime? How'd you start your podcast? Why murder? And just how I got started in this overall. And I don't have a totally canned answer to that question. But I usually say something like, well, I've always been interested in dark things. I've always loved crime shows on TV, murder mystery books, things like that. And that's true. Criminal minds, law and order, forensic files, all that stuff is totally my jam. Even way back before that, when I was really young, a few of my favorite shows were like the original Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack, and shows like Murder, She Wrote and Matlock, those old school crime TV shows that a lot of you listening probably have no idea what I'm talking about because you're too young to remember that stuff. In elementary school, during library time, I'd always rush to the fiction section to find all the mysteries that were made for kids, all the ghost story books, and I just loved consuming the kinds of stories that would cause me to cover my head with blankets at night when the lights went out. I liked to be scared, in a controlled, safe way, of course. Isn't that why most of us love true crime? And then as I got older, my interest shifted from things that go bump in the night and G-rated Nancy Drew mysteries over to the darker side of true crime. I read Helter Skelter in middle school. I was reading about cults and serial killers before I was even old enough to drive. And my all-time favorite author, whose books I consumed like a decadent dessert, was Stephen King. In college, then, I took numerous psychology and sociology classes to try to get an understanding of why people do the things they do. My favorite class was abnormal psychology. I loved hearing about mental conditions and unusual details of the human brain that make people different. I moved on to focusing on media and PR and school, and eventually I graduated with a BA in communications. And now I've worked in radio and entertainment on and off for 20 years. So when someone asks me, why do you do a podcast about true crime? How did you become interested in murder and dark things like this? Well, that's a really long answer. But the short answer is, it's just in my blood. And speaking of blood... Well, these grisly murders that were making headlines in 2018 put me on a mission to start my own podcast. I mean, I basically binged podcasts 24-7 already. I loved shows like True Crime Garage, Morbid, That's Why We Drink, Crime Junkie, American Haunting, Sword and Scale, Missing Maura Murray, and way, way, way too many others to mention right now. But I was like, you know what? I've got this. I can do a podcast. So knowing nothing at all about the logistics of podcasting, I started my own using a $15 microphone and a cheap old laptop with a cracked screen. One of the first few episodes I published was about the murder of Michelle Martinko. And we're going to listen to that episode right now. 
I'm going to be talking about this case really in depth in the next few episodes, so we definitely need to go over the details of this case one more time. So, let's do it. But first... Michelle Martinko's murder remained unsolved for 39 years, haunting her family, the Cedar Rapids, Iowa community, and investigators who were searching for her killer. It would take decades, patience, and major advancements in technology to finally bring Michelle's murderer to justice. This is True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is the mysterious murder of Michelle Martinko. Eighteen-year-old high school senior Michelle Martinko may have been from Iowa, but she looked every bit a California girl. With big, blonde, Farrah Fawcett hair, sun-kissed skin, and delicate facial features, it's easy to see why people gravitated to Michelle and why she had a lot of male admirers. She was a great student and involved in many extracurricular activities, including the school choir. It was on Wednesday night, December 19, 1979, at about 6.30 p.m., when she actually finished up at her school choir banquet and drove her family's 1972 Buick Electra to Westdale Mall. The mall was brand new in the city of Cedar Rapids, and it was definitely the place to be. Just six days before Christmas, the mall would have been buzzing with activity of last-minute shoppers and with excited teens ready to start their Christmas break. The sun would have long ago set and it would have been pretty dark by 6.30 p.m. The weather would have been very cold around Christmas time in Iowa. And in fact, that's what brought Michelle to the mall. Her mother had put a new winter coat on layaway for her, so she went to check it out. But Michelle and mom had differing tastes and she didn't want the coat. She did stay at the mall for a little while, though, just chatting with friends and having fun for a little bit before she headed home. One of the friends recalls Michelle being a little jumpy and nervous during the visit to the mall. Like, this is probably crazy, but I just keep feeling like someone is watching me here tonight. Like I'm being followed. It's probably nothing. I didn't like the coat my mom picked out. I should get home. See you guys tomorrow at school. Soon after that, Michelle left the mall and headed out to the car to head home. She would never make it out of the parking lot that night. And early the next morning, several hours later at around 2 a.m., Michelle's worried parents reported her as missing to the Cedar Rapids police. It would be just two hours later at around 4 a.m. when police would discover the Martinko family Buick in the Westdale Mall parking lot, with Michelle's body still in it. 
She had stab wounds to the face and chest, almost 30 wounds in fact. Her hands were covered in defensive wounds from putting up an intense fight. The car's interior was absolutely soaked in blood, and investigators at the time concluded the homicide must have been personal in nature due to the perceived anger and emotion in those stab wounds. Michelle had been all dressed up for her banquet at the downtown Sheraton Hotel. She was wearing a black and white rabbit fur coat and a long dress. When describing the grisly crime scene, police would recall the image of bloody rabbit fur all over the car from the coat she had been wearing. Michelle was lying on her back, slumped over the passenger seat of the Buick, and leaning against the car door. Police laid out all their ideas on what they thought happened in Michelle's murder. First off, Michelle was parked at the very back of the mall parking lot, far away from anyone else, and that was her first mistake. And they presumed that she had probably been sitting in her vehicle warming up from the cold. Another big mistake when you're alone in a dark mall parking lot, but it's something I'm totally guilty of doing, so I can't judge. Still not a good idea. Her assailant snuck up on her, opened the car door, and got into the vehicle with her. Luckily, investigators determined that Michelle was not sexually assaulted, but she had also not been robbed, which was interesting considering she had nearly $200 cash on her that night since she had gone to the mall to buy a coat and didn't. Michelle was stabbed inside of her vehicle. The struggle and the murder and the entire event happened and stayed inside the car. All the blood remained inside the car, so there was no struggle outside and there was no murder weapon found either inside or outside of the vehicle. Police assumed that the killer was wearing gloves because he left behind no fingerprints, no DNA, and no evidence. So he thought... So who could have done this? Murders like this, full of rage and passion, tend to be personal rather than random. It's almost always a boyfriend, a husband, a jaded ex-lover, or an angry stalker. And rumors began to swirl. Family and friends looked at Andy Seidel, Michelle's previous boyfriend, although police did not really consider him a strong suspect. But Michelle's brother-in-law, along with other family members and friends, considered Andy to be possessive, and he just gave them a bad feeling. They thought he had a motive to commit this crime. Andy and Michelle had met while roller skating, and they were inseparable for two years until Michelle broke up with Andy. Friends say she just didn't want to be in a committed relationship at such a young age, and Andy apparently did not take it very well. Michelle's brother-in-law would say that after the two broke up, Andy wanted to know her every move, who she was dating, why she was dating that particular person, and he would talk to her friends, and he just would not go away. 
Police also learned that Andy had run into Michelle at the mall on the night of her murder, which looked bad. What also looked bad, or at least odd, was the emotional spectacle Andy made at the funeral. He literally laid on top of Michelle's body in the casket with his arms around her, just sobbing. And he was begging those around him, I have to know who she loved when she died. Did she love me? Who did she love when she died? So, I personally don't actually feel like that sort of emotional reaction is that out of the ordinary for a grieving teen who lost the person they love. But, other things factored in, it raised eyebrows. They brought Andy in for questioning, but he had a solid alibi, which was corroborated by other people at the mall, as well as Andy's family. So, it appeared that although Andy may have been obsessed with Michelle, He wasn't the person who killed her. After the ordeal, and after being cleared as a suspect, Andy would attempt to put the past behind him by joining the Navy and moving out of state. So, who was it? Who could have murdered this bright and beautiful teenager? Literally every single male that knew Michelle was a suspect, according to the police ex-boyfriends, friends from school, teachers, coaches, and even family members. Investigators questioned every single possible suspect, clearing hundreds of men, one by one. Tips had been coming in, but as a few years went by, those tips became fewer. Leads dwindled, and soon they were left with nothing. Each anniversary of this brutal murder that rocked the Iowa community was highlighted in local news stories, and it was a sad reminder of Michelle's absence. Although in 1979, DNA technology was basically non-existent, all of the evidence collected in the case, the clothing, the blood samples, fibers, etc., everything was all delicately collected, preserved, and saved for the future when advancements in technology would have police taking a second look. In 2005, 26 years after the murder, detectives took another look at Michelle's case with clearer eyes. As they were reviewing the case details, they realized that previous investigators had recovered scrapings from blood smears that were found on the gear shifter of the car immediately after the murder. The DNA was male. The killer probably cut himself during the fight and the stabbing, and his blood and DNA got intermingled with Michelle's. At this point, they also decided to send Michelle's dress out for testing. Well, there was a spot of blood on Michelle's dress that had the exact same male DNA profile as the male blood on the gear shifter of the car. So, their killer accidentally left behind his DNA in two places. If they could find the match to these two DNA samples, they could find their killer. 
The following year in 2006, investigators uploaded the new evidence into the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. This database matches samples from unsolved crimes to samples from convicted offenders. But no match was made through CODIS. And this kind of actually supported the idea that maybe Michelle's killer was someone who knew her. If it was a family member or a friend, their DNA would doubtfully be in CODIS because it's very unlikely that any of those close to Michelle had been convicted of any crimes. So, police did start gathering DNA from previous suspects in the case. Person after person was continually ruled out based on lack of a DNA match. They were literally so close to their killer, and they had his DNA signature in their hands. They just could not figure out who that could be. On December 16th, 2013, just three days before the December 19th anniversary of Michelle's murder, Cedar Rapids police received a tip through Lynn Area Crime Stoppers, which led to a possible suspect. But the DNA of the suspect did not match the DNA from the crime scene they had on file from 2006. December 19, 2013 marked the 34th anniversary of Michelle Martinko's murder. And although they had just received a call from a tipster three days prior, her case sat on ice with no solid suspects. And while Michelle's family mourned the passing of another year, there was another family, complete strangers to the Martinkos, who lived an hour north, doing their own mourning. 55-year-old Brian Farmer Burns was last seen at his home on Thursday, December 19, 2013, and he was reported missing to the Delaware County Sheriff's Office in Manchester, Iowa the next day. So this man was said to have had a mental disability. He helped out at the local golf course even though he didn't own a car, didn't possess a driver's license, and he didn't even have a cell phone. Some described him as having a mental disability, but others would say, well, no, not exactly. He was just drunk a lot. Brian, referred to as Farmer, loved to party, loved to have a good time, and you could often find him secretly sleeping off a hangover out in the golf course sheds. He had a lot of friends and family in the community who he was close to, and that's why it was odd that one day he would just up and leave, on foot, with nothing but the clothes on his back, without a trace. Even more odd, why would he do that just days before he was going to be celebrating Christmas with his family? He always celebrated Christmas and the holidays with his family. Plus, leaving on foot in a bitterly cold Iowa winter, that's just not something he would do. So, a 55-year-old mentally challenged man with no car, no money, no ID, days before Christmas in the coldest part of the year goes missing, to the day on the exact anniversary of Michelle Martinko's murder in a town an hour away. An extensive search was done of the entire area, on foot and by snowmobile. Volunteers looked everywhere for Brian Burns, but he never turned up. 
No signs of him anywhere. Not a trace. Absolutely nothing. And he was never seen or heard from again. Brian Burns' name is among the 251 Iowa missing persons on the Iowa Department of Public Safety's Missing Person Information Clearinghouse list. The same list that still has missing people of all ages, including well-known names like Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin, who disappeared in the 1980s. Looking at this list of names is, well, eerie. It's a disturbing reminder that there are people out there who had lives and friends and family who one day literally just disappeared without a trace, never to be seen or heard from again. There are babies on this list as young as three months old. There are elderly people on this list and every age in between. And this is a subject we will discuss more in depth in a future episode of True Crime IRL because it is haunting and these unsolved cases need to be pulled into the light of day if they're ever going to be solved. These missing people deserve for their cases to be solved. But for now, back to Brian Farmer Burns. So Brian Burns goes missing on the anniversary of Michelle Martinko's death. But there's no real correlation between the two other than that date. The two could not possibly be related, right? On April 10th, 2014, just four months after that anonymous tip was called in about Michelle Martinko's case, police issue a press release to ask for that tipster from December to contact them again, saying the information he provided was credible and that they would most likely be able to contribute more information. But no one else came forward again. It was almost as if the tipster had just disappeared. In 2015, Detective Matt Denlinger took over the Michelle Martinko case. He was the second-generation detective in his family to work on this case. His dad, Harvey Denlinger, had been the lead detective on the case years ago. So, Matt was determined to solve this case that had haunted not only the Martinko family for decades, but his own family as well. So, Matt Denlinger knew that they had plenty of DNA samples of the killer stashed away. So he reached out to Parabon Nanolabs in Virginia for help. You've definitely heard of Parabon Nanolabs before, if you like true crime. They do absolutely groundbreaking things with DNA, and their work has helped solve a lot of high-profile cold cases in the last few years. And using the DNA samples they had on file to do DNA phenotyping, they put together a profile of physical features Michelle Martinko's killer might have had. They came up with an estimate of physical appearance and ancestry, with hair color, eye color, and they were able to create a snapshot of a blue-eyed, blonde-haired man. After detectives released this photo to the public, they fielded hundreds upon hundreds of calls. Basically, every blonde-haired, blue-eyed man ever to set foot in Iowa had someone calling into the tip line about them. And this, again, left investigators baffled. The good news about this is that they were able to rule out about 100 previous persons of interest from their original list but they still had no real leads as to who the killer was. 
Enter 2018 and the hottest Christmas present since Tickle Me Elmo. <laughs> Genetic testing and DNA genealogy kits. You know, like Ancestry DNA, 23andMe. You pay $100 to spit into a test tube, and in return you get a report back telling you that you have a third cousin twice removed in Cincinnati, or that your real dad is actually the milkman. I've done these kits twice now, and it's amazing to discover more info about my family tree. I always thought I was uber German, but no, I'm like 98% Irish, which does explain the ginger hair, my affinity for the color green, and oh, hey, my first name, Kelly, as well as my talent for putting down a few Jamesons on the rocks, and my interest in shenanigans, hootenannies, banshees, and leprechauns, but I digress. And this was probably what Brandy Jennings of Vancouver, Washington was thinking when she submitted her own DNA in one of those same sorts of kits. Because when Parabon Nanolabs did further testing on the DNA samples collected in Michelle's case, they found out that Brandy had a killer in the family. Brandy Jennings, an office manager and a single mom, was a distant relative to the male whose DNA was found on Michelle's bloody dress and car. She would have been the second cousin once removed. Detective Matt Denlinger began a process that his father never would have believed possible when he worked Michelle Martinko's case decades ago. Denlinger spent months building Brandy's family tree all the way back to her great-great-grandparents. They used genealogical records, birth records, gravestone records, anything they could find on the internet, and anything they could find to fill in the unknowns. As more blood relatives of Brandy Jennings provided their DNA, a genetic puzzle filled in. And the detective reached out to Parabon Nano Labs once again. They recalibrated things on their end, and they said that their best odds were these three brothers who lived in Iowa. Three brothers, all from Iowa, all luckily still living, and all likely sharing some DNA with the blood found in Michelle Martinko's car. A 38-year trail was heading back home to Iowa. The investigative team set up a plan to covertly obtain DNA samples from Donald Burns, Kenneth Burns, and Jerry Burns. They followed one brother to lunch and grabbed his straw. For the second, a toothbrush was collected from his garbage. And then the third brother, Jerry. Investigators drove to Manchester, Iowa. They had already established a pattern of locations that Jerry Burns frequented. When he was eating at a local pizza restaurant, detectives waited until he was finished and took his straw from the soda he had been drinking. All three brothers' samples were sent to the lab. Don and Kenneth were not a match, but the results showed Jerry Burns was an exact match. They finally discovered who the unknown male blood taken off of both Michelle's dress and the gear shifter of her car belonged to. Jerry Lynn Burns of Manchester, Iowa. Does that last name and town sound familiar? Remember Brian Farmer Burns, the mentally disabled Manchester man who went missing on the anniversary of Michelle Martinko's death? Well, that was Jerry's cousin, 
So, we know that Jerry Burns was most likely Michelle Martinko's killer because his blood was found at the crime scene. We know that in 2013, an anonymous tip was called in regarding Michelle's case. We know that just three days after that anonymous tip was called in, Brian Burns went missing, never to be seen again. We know that just four months after the tip was called in, police pled with the anonymous tipster to please contact them again because their tip actually was credible. But that person seemed to have just disappeared off the face of the earth and never reached out to the police again. Did Brian Burns call in that anonymous tip? Did he know too much? Could he have been there with his cousin on the night of the murder? Did Jerry Burns silence him? The local rumor mill in the small town of Manchester was full of theories, including a story that right after Burns went missing, his cousin Jerry had a large concrete slab poured out on his farm. Does the secret of Brian Farmer Burns' whereabouts lie at the bottom of that concrete slab? On December 19, 2018, the 39-year anniversary of Michelle Martinko's murder, investigators headed to Manchester, Iowa to question now 64-year-old Jerry Lynn Burns at his workplace. And the weird thing in this interview footage is, he actually never really denies having involvement in Michelle's murder. He was unable to offer an explanation for why his DNA would have been found at the crime scene, but he doesn't flat out tell investigators that he didn't do it either. He asks questions such as, could a person commit a murder like this but just block it out of their memory? Burns was arrested facing a first-degree murder charge in the 1979 slaying of Michelle Martinko. But what motive would then 25-year-old Jerry Burns, who is married, with children and lived an hour away have to viciously murder an 18-year-old high school senior, Michelle Martinko, in a dark parking lot six days before Christmas? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Jerry Burns' resume was the opposite of a cold-blooded killer. He had no criminal record and was even a respected businessman in his community with a wife and three kids. Oh, oh, wait, 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 sorry, back up a second. He had a wife, past tense. At the time of his arrest, though, Jerry Burns didn't have a wife any longer because she was dead after an apparent suicide in 2008. One month after his arrest on January 25, 2019, Jerry Lynn Burns appeared in court pleading not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder. Months would go by as Burns sat in jail awaiting his day in court. But that day would get delayed, as his defense team asked for more time as well as a change in venue. A new trial date was set for February 10th, 2020. There was a lot of work going on behind the scenes prior to the trial's start. Jerry Burns' lawyers wanted the DNA evidence that the prosecution was relying on, as well as information gathered in a search of his internet history on his computer, to be thrown out. So, the DNA evidence was not thrown out, thank goodness, but Jerry Burns' internet search history was. And that internet search history was a doozy. 
Apparently, Jerry Burns' computer had some effed up shit on it. Someone, <coughs> Jerry Burns, <coughs> used the computer to look up pornography involving violent sex acts. There were basically snuff films, depictions of raping, torturing, and killing women. There had been numerous Google searches involving blonde women being tortured and killed. So Jerry Burns definitely had a fetish for violent porn, and not just rough sex, but actual women being killed on camera. I think that's pretty dang pertinent, don't you? The judge, however, didn't agree, due to the fact that these internet searches took place decades after Michelle's murder, and jurors would never know what Jerry Burns was into, because it was all suppressed. An expert witness was going to testify that Burns' fetish for violent sex was a motive in killing Michelle, but that expert testimony was also barred from the courtroom. So, the murder trial began on February 10th, 2020, 39 years since Michelle was murdered. And this was a day that family, friends, and investigators honestly thought they may never see. The prosecution's theory rested pretty much 100% on the DNA evidence, saying the odds of it being incorrect were astronomical. But the defense insisted that the DNA could have been transferred accidentally during testing. Burns also made the comment that he had worked at a car dealership in the late 1970s that sold Buicks. Maybe he had been inside Michelle's parents' vehicle at some point before they bought it and gotten his blood on the gear shifter of the car. Impossible? No. Highly unlikely? Absolutely. And even if that story were true, it does explain how his blood could be found on the gear shifter of the car, but it does not explain how Jerry Burns' blood got on the dress that Michelle was wearing the night she was murdered. Jerry Burns' defense team would encounter a hiccup in the journey when a jailhouse informant spoke out about a disturbing encounter he had with Burns while in jail. Michael Allison was Jerry Burns' jailhouse bunkmate. And he stated that the two men had become close during their time in the Lynn County Jail. Together, the two would play games of pinochle and discuss details of their lives. At times, they would jokingly refer to each other as dad and son. Aww. Burns even autographed a newspaper clipping showing himself in handcuffs in a courtroom, signing, To my favorite son, Michael, Jerry Burns. During pinochle games, Burns joked with Allison that if he didn't stop beating him, he would have to, quote, take him down to the mall. Michael Allison stated that Burns confided in him that regardless of what the outcome of the trial was, he felt like he had already won because he had been able to be free all these years out with his family. You might be thinking, okay, so this guy turned into a snitch to get time off his drug sentence. But no, he came forward on his own accord and was made no promises by anyone. So those insights definitely did not help the defense in their case. In late February 2020, both sides presented closing arguments and the trial wrapped up. The jury began deliberations at about 1 p.m. 
and it would be just a short three hours until they came back into the courtroom with a verdict. Jerry Burns was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Michelle Martinko. So, does a man with a fetish for violent porn put on his rubber gloves, kill a random 18-year-old girl by stabbing her 30 times in the face and neck, but never kill again? Was this his one and only murder? What do you think? What did Jerry's cousin, Brian Farmer Burns, know? In my mind, it cannot be a coincidence that a credible, anonymous tip was called into investigators three days before the anniversary of Michelle Martinko's murder. And it cannot be a coincidence that three days later, on the anniversary of Michelle's death, the killer's cousin goes missing without a trace. And it cannot be a coincidence that the anonymous tipster was never heard from again after police pled for more info. There is a shroud of mystery around the Burns family. Not only did Burns' cousin go missing under mysterious circumstances, but Jerry Burns' wife, Patricia, was said to have committed suicide in 2008. Although investigators have said they have no reason to believe her death was anything other than suicide, with everything we know now about the Burns family, it makes you wonder. Patricia, or Pat, as her friends called her, was a member of St. Mary's Catholic Church in their small town. She enjoyed quilting, collecting teddy bears, gardening, and spending time with her family. What reason did Pat have to kill herself? Now, we never know what's going on with a person's mental health or what internal demons they're battling. But what reason would this seemingly happy, Catholic, religious grandma have to end her life through suicide? Oh, and you may be wondering, like I was, what her exact cause of death was. Was it an overdose? Hanging? Carbon monoxide poisoning? Well, no, it was none of those things. It was a little bit more of a violent way than that for a woman to choose to end her life. Her manner of death was listed as suicide, with her cause of death being a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Women who commit suicide typically use less violent methods, such as a drug overdose or carbon monoxide poisoning, than men who more often use firearms as their method of suicide. So did Pat really commit suicide in 2008? Or did Jerry kill her and make it look self-inflicted? If you think about the logistics involved in holding a shotgun up to your own body and pulling the trigger, it seems like a difficult feat for a woman to complete on her own. And even though investigators ruled her death as a suicide, a lot of people are not so sure. There's more to the story than what we know. Since the recent conviction of Jerry Burns in the Michelle Martinko murder case, rumors have continued to swarm around the close-knit and often tight-lipped community of Manchester, Iowa. Jerry Burns' name has come into question as a possible link in other unsolved murder cases. One such case is that of Jody Husentrude, the popular 27-year-old up-and-coming Mason City, Iowa news anchor who was abducted in 1995 from home as she was getting into her car to head to work. 
Jerry Burns granted prominent journalist and private investigator Steve Ridge an exclusive Christmas Eve 2020 interview, where the two discussed any links Burns may have had to the Jody Husen troop disappearance. Steve Ridge has worked tirelessly for the last few years trying to solve the Jody Husen troop case and says that it's doubtful that there's any connection between the two cases. The family and friends of Michelle Martinko can now rest knowing that her killer has been found and justice has been served. But as that case has come to a close, more questions than ever are surfacing about Jerry Burns' life during the decades when he eluded police. There may very well have been more people involved, and somebody knows something, or knew something. Maybe that somebody was permanently silenced. And this case is not even completely over with yet. We will absolutely be hearing more in the coming months and years, because during Steve Ridge's interview with Jerry Burns, Burns informed Ridge that he has hired a new lawyer for his appeal. Burns has hired Chicago attorney Kathleen Zellner to represent him in his appeal. If you're asking yourself why the name Kathleen Zellner sounds familiar to you, it's because she's famous for representing Stephen Avery in the Netflix original true crime documentary, Making a Murderer. Zellner specializes in writing wrongful convictions, and she has represented dozens of exonerees in their wrongful conviction cases, getting about 20 convictions overturned. With a proven track record of success, I want to know exactly what new evidence persuaded someone of Kathleen Zellner's caliber to take on what seems to have been a clear-cut case with DNA evidence. So, will Jerry Burns be part of the next big Netflix true crime docuseries? Do you still have questions? Are you convinced either way about Jerry Burns' guilt or innocence? What about his cousin Brian's disappearance and his wife Patricia's suicide? There are just too many still unanswered questions surrounding this mysterious man, his life, his family, and his actions. So that was one of the first episodes I ever did, you guys. I hope you liked it. I feel like I'm improving a lot as time goes on with my podcast. I hope you agree. And if you do agree and you like the show, please go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever, and give me a five-star rating and review. It helps the show so much for people to find it and things like that. So I really appreciate your help with that. And if you want to help support the show, you can always go to truecrimeirl.com and give a tip in the tip jar or become a Patreon donor for just a few dollars a month. It helps us keep the lights on and helps keep the show going. And I appreciate you so much. So next time, we're going to get into the details of the Michelle Martinko and Jerry Burns trial. Lots of exciting information to come and... I still have a lot of things in my back pocket that I have not told you guys yet about the goings-on in Manchester in general and some of the crazy things. So stay tuned, keep listening, and I will talk to you guys soon. And until then, you know what to do. Lock your doors, people. Just lock them. Bye-bye.
Time IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. Please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at truecrimeirl, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 